Hi, everybody. You are all very welcome to the latest episode of the NFL show. My name is Christina Quigley, and I am joined by three of the best guys in Ireland and actually practically Ireland, but also Wisconsin. I know before you shake your head, you Um, (laughs) talking about NFL. And don't forget that we also have a competition that we're giving away uh, where once you subscribe to our new YouTube channel, uh, you can actually win merchandise with our partners at USA Sports, who are based in the ILAC Center. And we are giving away a hoodie and we're giving away a hat. The prize draw will happen next Monday at midday. Uh, Brian will be in charge of that. So you will need to tag him as well on every piece of social media that you're doing over the weekend. He absolutely loves seeing that on Twitter. Without further ado, let's kick off the show. We are so excited to be back for sure. I'm really excited to be here tonight. Uh, we have a very special guest. Sam Monson is going to be joining us from PFF. What a great time to be talking to him about football and also rugby, given the fact that he is such a big rugby guy, which Colin actually made sure I was aware of before we joined tonight. Thank you, Colin. Um, but let's get talking about what's happening around the league over the last few days. We are in the middle of pro days, which is super cool to be able to see a lot of these guys start throwing balls. I've seen Frankie been tagging a lot of stuff on Twitter over the last few hours in particular. Guys, how are you feeling about this in the lead up to the draft? Oh, well, jump being forces. That's all right. These uh, these pro days are are great, but like it doesn't really give a true. In my opinion, it doesn't really give a true reflection of what we're going to see um, during the podcasting this week and last week's show. Conum referred to the Zach Wilson's pro day and how the Jets were mesmerized by what they saw that day, and they still are mesmerized because you know it hasn't it hasn't really worked out. And here they are now trying to make a deal, still trying to make a deal for a 39-year-old quarterback. But um, we saw today with uh, Ritz's pro day where he's hitting he's hitting the roof with his ball. So I, I assume whoever picks him up won't want him playing in, in Jerry's world come, uh, because we see what happens when punters kick the ball too high there and hits off, hits off the screen. But um, the league meetings are on this week as well, Christine. And like, there's a, I'll let the guys jump in now. When we get to talk about the league meetings, I really want to talk about the Lamar Jackson situation. Yeah, the pro days have been fun to watch. It's been interesting seeing uh, Anthony Richardson, as as Brian pointed out. Like, I mean, this guy's just superhuman. I mean, this is just an event that's kind of built for him. When you get to see a guy like him just get to play in shorts and a t-shirt, just gunning the ball against no pressure, no defense, it's going to look incredible. But, you know, it's it's one of those things that's like, it's still fun to see, man. You know, like, it's like the dunk contest or something like that. Like, you want to see how far this guy can throw it. You want to see, like, those beautiful, like, trajectories of the pass out of, out of his hand. I mean... People, like, you know, it kind of just confirms all priors you've already known about this guy. If you've watched his tape or you've been following along with him for a while, the ball absolutely leaps out of this guy's hand, man. It's it's gorgeous to watch. Like, it's it's a bazooka. He throws a beautiful moon ball, and I mean, the, the, there's just everything about it. It's it's pretty fun to see. But, like, as, as Brian pointed out, it's not the most important thing in the world. It's not like a, guy, a coach that watched his tape and didn't love him. He's going to be like, wow, did you... Did you see him in that practice setting, though? Like, man, I, I don't know. We should really th- rethink our stuff about him, but uh, still pretty fun to see. Yeah, look, it's it's entertaining, but ultimately this is like doing keepy uppies and then having to go out and play 90 minutes. It's totally different. You know, you, you do not have a 320-pound uh, D-lineman coming in, uh, like, through, the, through the, the middle looking to uh, take the ball off of you. So, yeah, enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy the draft process. It's great. It, it, it's great talking points. But it is hilarious to have a look back over the past, you know, go back maybe 
four or five years, see the way in which people were talking about um, the the draft prospects at that time, look at how it how it all goes, and then see where we are at kind of uh, five years on. It's um, it's fascinating to see how it plays out because the transition to the league, getting you know big money for the first time, uh, having to to deal with you know players all, all of a sudden you go players of all all ages usually they've been around your age so I I enjoy the entertainment factor but it it is all a bit uh, kind of Disney esque uh, you know hopefully uh, they won't come after us for monetary uh, for for that. I love it, Colin. Absolutely love it. I think, you know, touching on this, you know, Richardson was mentioned. He did hit the ceiling, but I think people need to go back and start looking at the tapes, which Frankie is always pushing everybody to, is looking at tapes. And that's where you actually see how the guy's been performing for ages. Forget about what you see today. Forget about what you see over the course of the week. You need to go back and you need to physically look at the tapes and see what these guys have been throwing. Because this is just a tiny reflection on their whole career to date. And I think that's something that people need to remember. Because just before we join on Twitter, everyone's kind of going mad about the fact that he hit the ceiling. So what? Things happen. You know, it, it's just how it goes. But let's start about the GM's meetings and the league meetings. That's actually been happening this week because Monday, Twitter went wild because of Lamar Jackson again. Um, when he actually declared his intent to leave and that he wants a trade. He requested a trade earlier on in the year. And it was just when Harbour was sitting down to do his meeting. Guys, what were your thoughts on that? Because I genuinely thought it was wild. I was so busy that I missed part of it. And then Brian messaged me to tell me it. And I was going, wow. For me, I spoke about this last night in particular. I just think he's burning his bridges with so many other teams right now. His request for his finances is just massive. And I think, you know, him not being able to play two seasons without an injury is kind of something that's up there in a lot of the team's minds. I, I just can't see him being picked up right now in the next few weeks for sure. Uh, I'm I'm taken back by the fact that no one's pursuing him. I just think it's, it's ludicrous. The guy's an MVP player and, you know, okay, fine, he's had injuries, but that's the nature of the, the player in which you're getting. You know, you're getting not just a quarterback, but essentially one of the, the best you know, best runners in the day because essentially he's a dual threat and there's been a running back. Oh, I think it's hilarious that these people are coming out with these comments and in particular, I mean, owners like this week at the league meeting, you've got owners saying, we'll come to, I think we're going to come to when Sam was around what Washington had to say, but I found Arthur Blank's comments in particular really amusing because he said, yeah, we're not interested. We've done our, our homework on this and we can't pursue a player who's missed large parts of two seasons but yet they were trying to sign Deshaun Watson 12 months ago who he knew at the time was in all likelihood going to miss the entirety of a season if not the 11 games at which he, he got in the end with the band so I just don't get it and, and I, I didn't like the way it was I didn't like what he did on Monday personally I think it was all coordinated in a way that he made sure that the tweet went out at the same time which Jim Harbaugh sat down because I feel like there is an, there is an end result where he could stay in Baltimore and I think he needs to be conscious of that and not board his bridges completely with the ownership and the head coach, but over the past two weeks there's been all these startups about under unsolicited agents that aren't really, you know, tagged to the league working on his behalf. So that's a bit strange, but I think if an agent had been involved in this from the very from the day one, I don't think we'd be at the situation in which which we're at. But at the same time, I still can't believe teams like the Colts, Falcons, Washington, others in the league aren't willing to give up their two picks to get a player that for me is a he's a I wouldn't say he's a generational quarterback, but he's not far off. Yeah, I mean, I still hope that we see a team like the Colts possibly throw in some interest. I think that there is definitely like a realm of possibility there. Maybe them, maybe a team like the Patriots kind of 
throws their hat in the ring to try to get a Lamar Jackson. But yeah, man, getting back to the Arthur Blank statements, it, it's absolutely crazy. And he even doubled down on it saying, like, it's two completely separate situations with, like, their availability. And it's like, nah, man. Like, Deshaun Watson has dealt with many injuries since getting into the league and has missed a multitude of games. He's also a player that, like, when you when people like to think that Lamar Jackson is this running quarterback, so, of course, he's putting his body at risk. Like, the same thing was with Watson. Watson's one of the most sacked quarterbacks in the league when he plays. Like, there's just these arguments aren't in reality. And I guess what, what annoys me more about it is it's or not more about, but, like, one of the things that kind of irritates me most is just kind of it. it it feels like it ruins the competitiveness of the league almost to a point. When you have these teams that have been bottom feeders for so long and these owners that make handfuls, money hand over fist from season ticket owners, you know, they're just, they're reaping the benefits of having a, a bad football team but because they're one of these owners in this elite group of, you know, oh, we're, we're, the, we're the rich guys that run the, run the football league. You know, they don't really have any pressure to really improve their teams and they're not going to screw over their buddy over in Baltimore. So it seems like they're just kind of, taking their foot off the gas which is just really irritating because i mean i mean just from a fan perspective it, it's got to be so like i like you know luckily or unluckily enough you know like the, the broncos have russell wilson so i'm not really thinking to myself man i hope they go after lamar jackson because they can't but like if they weren't going for it like i gotta be honest i think that would kind of ruin my like faith in them as a team like clearly they aren't doing everything they can to get better if you're a colts fan right now and your quarterback is you know god knows who and you have the opportunity to go get lamar jackson and jim mercy says I'd rather hold off for a couple of years and let us ride the bottom of the barrel for a little longer while we watch teams like the Jaguars overtake our division. Like, screw that, man. Like, we can go get an MVP candidate right now, and he's available. So I, I, I don't get it. I completely agree. It's ridiculous. I hope I completely root for Lamar in this situation. I think it's awesome what he's doing for players because, I mean, you know, like he's he's taking this stance, and I think it's it's the right stance for him to take, you know? So, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's ridiculous. I hope to see him on a new team because I think Baltimore has kind of played up there end of the deal, I don't think that they can really push it off any longer. But one thing that's kind of weird about it, and I've heard a couple people mention this, is for a team that might be moving off of Lamar Jackson, like, this offense is built around Lamar Jackson, right? Everybody acknowledges that. You'd think for a team that was, like, possibly having to move off of this very unique player, they'd be kind of building their offense differently, but they aren't really doing that so far. In fact, they've been one of the less active teams in free agency. So that's one thing that's been very interesting to keep an eye on, is it doesn't seem like they're preparing to move off him as much as you'd think they should be. The, I suppose what what I would add, um, so Jeremy Fowler has come out and said Lamar isn't looking for a fully guaranteed contract, but he is looking for more guaranteed than um, Deshaun Watson. And I know, Christina, that um, one of the talking points on Twitter was has been around, I suppose, that the Brady and the Mahomes phenomenon where players are willing to take a haircut. But Brady and Mahomes did that on the basis that their respective teams went out and spent every single bit of cap space that they had on trying to get better. Now, if you are Lamar Jackson and you see what the Baltimore Ravens have done and they haven't given you weapons and you have watched the Buffalo Bills go and get weapons for Josh Allen, you watched the Philadelphia Eagles go and get weapons for Jalen Hurts, you have watched that Patrick Mahomes contract and you see what the Chiefs do. And that's where you need that trust. I mean, Mahomes signs this deal. He's still getting an awful lot of money, but he is willing to take it on the basis that um, the, the Hunt family and Brett Leach are going to maximize the, every single year they will go out of their way to, to spend. Um, you know, I, I think if, if Lamar was in that situation, it might be very different, but that hasn't been the, the case um, you know, I think you can point to, to that with the, the Ravens. So 
Um, that that to me is, is why this situation is uh, a little bit different. Um, you know, seeing all of the teams publicly back out is is quite quite something. And um, you know, I, I the the one other point that I will make is it was also fascinating to see uh, Asante Samuel uh, publicly come out and say uh, you don't want to play for Bill Belichick. Yeah, I saw that the same. Sorry, because I just want to make one more quick point. And it's to what Frankie said around the Raiders building this offense and essentially they're not doing anything this offseason. And he's right, like they're, they're, of all the teams have been <clears throat> one of the least active in terms of offensive players being brought in, which to me strikes me as a team that they just don't see anything whatever on Dan Lamar being back. And that probably plays into what Jim uh, Harbour said at the uh, at the press conference on Monday that as far as he's concerned, he's going to be there and playing week one. But if it doesn't go that way, and it, it, inevitably, say someone does offer up these two first round picks as part of part of the deal, which I don't even know whether they need to do that now because again, this week there's been so many storylines. But another one is that they could potentially get him for this because the Ravens will, at some stage, recognise they have to move him on. Where do the Ravens go then? Because what I would say, and again, frankly, made a great point about these teams at the bottom of the league, um, bottom bottom the barrel type quarterback scenarios. The Ravens still have a reasonably strong side. And they played quite well at times with his quarterbacks. Obviously, would he step in? It'd just be interesting because it doesn't strike me as a team that think they're going anywhere else but with Lemire's quarterback next season. With that, I'm not going to go on to any more about that for right now because we've got Sam in the waiting room and I'm very excited to bring him in. Um, so for those of you who are joining us. Um, we have Sam Monson with us from PFF. Sam, you are so welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Um, it's great to have you here, especially since Ireland won the Grand Slam two weeks ago, this weekend. And we're still celebrating. I can tell you for sure, we are still celebrating. How's everything with you, Sam? Good, yeah, thanks for having me. It is really good to have you here. And don't worry, the guys all have loads of questions lined up for you. So without further ado, I'm literally going to hand you over to each one of the guys around the screen tonight. Got to you. Sam, much to uh, Brian's chagrin, you were um, with me uh, very early on the Eagles hype train uh, last year. And um, obviously uh, ended up all, all the way in, in Phoenix. I'm kind of interested, I suppose, it, it's kind of maybe um, three, three parts because um, we, every, I think everyone here, um, we were pretty high on the Colts last year. And I know you had been high on the, the cards last year, but things obviously played out. But these three teams are somewhat now connected, given that the both coordinators have, have moved on from the Eagles. I'm just wondering in terms of, particularly with the, the Colts and the cards, do, do, has uh, has Shane uh, Steichen or uh, Jonathan Gannon ended up? Which of them have ended up in the the better uh, situation? And what way do you see it playing out for both of those respective teams? Given I understand this is a way too early before the draft, before uh, the this the summer uh, camps have have taken place. Yeah, I think it's remarkable like how quickly Arizona's situation has fallen apart. Um, that roster is is a mess right now. They need pretty much everything. Their quarterback is injured. Like the entire situation in Arizona is is kind of a disaster. And you know, if you extend that to the actual organization itself, you, you sort of see that NFLPA 
scorecard that was put out where they start judging, you know, all these teams in a bunch of different categories, like the Cardinals come out really badly from that as well. So not only are they a bad roster, are they a team without a sure thing at quarterback right now? The organization as a whole is a, is a mess as well. They're in, in rough shape, I think. And there's a lot on Gannon's plate to, to really turn that around. The Colts, though, I think could bounce back, um, reasonably quickly like obviously they're positioned to get a quarterback somewhere at the top of this draft whether they sit there at four whether they try and trade and make something happen whether they get into the the Lamar Jackson sweepstakes they're going to end up with some kind of different answer at quarterback in a different direction than they've gone over the last couple of years and they kind of said themselves that they sold Matt Ryan a bill of goods. Like the, the team that he was quarterbacking was not the one that they expected to have last year. But a lot of the pieces, I think, are still in place. The offensive line kind of fell to rack and ruin last year, but there's still the, I think, the majority of a very good offensive line in place there. Um, so I think the Colts could bounce back reasonably quickly. And certainly, I think that's the better of the two situations. So I'm just turning my attention and your attention towards the draft. And since the Ohio State's pro day, uh, Jackson Smith Ninijiva, I'm trying to find out exactly how you pronounce that surname, seems to have distanced himself from the other wide receivers in terms of, if you look at all the mock drafts, he seems to be in the 10 to 15 mark, potentially going to the Texans. I know you do great work in terms of previewing the draft. Is, is that how you see, is his clear cut, is that in terms of him against the other guys? It's a weird class, yeah. Um, he's de- yeah, I think you're right that that Smith and Jigba is definitely um, becoming the the number one on the consensus board. I think he's probably number two on my board. I think I still have Jordan Addison from USC as the number one wide receiver in the draft. But we just did our our wide receiver rankings on on the podcast with Steve, and you know I said at the time like I wouldn't argue strongly with somebody that had those two flipped and had Smith and Jigba as number one and, and Addison number two. But I think those two are the clear number one and two in this draft. Um, and then what you see, I think, is Addison slipping a bit because his workout numbers weren't particularly impressive. He weighed in smaller than he was listed as. He's generally a pretty small receiver. So I think his stock is slipping a little bit. And then the other guy whose stock appears to be slipping is TCU's um, Quentin Johnston, who is much bigger, faster, sort of straight line type of guy. But when you start diving into his tape, you see just a lot of kind of problems and areas where he isn't great in. So I think all of a sudden, people are kind of souring on him a little bit, and and, and he's slipping down that first round as well. So I think Jackson Smith and Jigba is the only one of those sort of big three whose stock isn't really taking a hit throughout this pre-draft process. Like everything he's done is workout numbers. Nobody expected him to run a fast 40. And a sort of four or five flat, more or less, depending on which number you use, um, pretty much tick the box for him, right? It's it's where everybody expected him to be. But he also posted like ridiculous three cone time, um, a ridiculous short shuttle time, like some of the fastest numbers anybody has ever posted at those positions, which is exactly what his game needs to be. Like if you're if you're going to be a four, five, forty type of receiver. You need to have elite change of direction skills and route running, and, and that's where he's like really at his best. So just kind of continuing on the draft, uh, I 
a, a prospect I've been kind of a little bit lower on, I feel like, but I've been seeing kind of gain some steam throughout the entire draft process. Uh, the the fifth quarterback, if you will, outside of the top four is Hendon Hooker. It seems like in interviews at the Senior Bowl, it seemed like he was liked, even though obviously he didn't get to practice. Um, what what are your thoughts on Hendon Hooker? Where do you think like the where do you think he kind of ends up fitting in the league once he kind of gets there? Do you think he kind of gets the chance to maybe start or compete for a job right away? Yeah, he's he's a difficult evaluation because. And it's not just him. It's Hendon Hooker. It's um, J- uh, Hyatt. It's Cedric Tillman. All the two receivers from that offense as well. Even the offensive tackle. The Tennessee offense in college is one of these sort of hyper college systems with you know incredible spread system. Really good offense for the college level, but it doesn't translate to the NFL. Like the stuff that he's doing at the college level is so far divorced from what he's going to have to do at the NFL level that trying to project from one to the other is really, really difficult. And it's not that you sort of look at him and you go, well, he can't do all these things. It's like he's not being asked to do any of it. So who knows? Um, So when people look at him, and you're right, he's definitely flying up draft boards. And the closer we get, the kind of higher up it seems to be getting to the point where, you know, uh, Mike Tannenbaum, former GM, had him going number five, I think, to the Seahawks the other day, which madness to me, but right. you know, that's where we're getting to with this. Um, but people look at him and they say, well, look, he's six foot three, he's 215 pounds, he's got the speed, he's got the arm, he's got all the tools you want from an abstract kind of point of view. He's been very accurate within that specific type of offense. He makes good decisions within that type of offense. So it's a case of you know, I see enough translatable traits that we're going to project him and say he can be a really good quarterback at the next level. For me, there's just too much projection involved. Like I'm, I can't see enough of what he's going to have to do at the next level for me to be comfortable taking him. Like certainly in the top ten, in the first round to me seems kind of crazy. But if that seems more and more inevitable as we get towards the draft, but it's crazy. Like that's that's the difficulty with his. Um, with his evaluation is that everything you see you like it's just there's a huge gap between the stuff that he's showing you and where he's actually going to have to be at the next level sam as a corkman delighted to see you uh you know tease mitchell sports about uh trying to guilty black uh, black pudding and uh, it was uh good to to see I suppose, um, you know, um, what, one of the things, and I know obviously alongside the, the podcast with Steve, you um, do the, the written pieces for PFF as well. And you did a piece recently around kind of the, the most improved position groups. And you talked a, a bit about the, the Lions. And, you know, we, we saw, we've seen, I suppose, under Dan Campbell's the last couple of years that the Lions have, um, you know, improved and, and impressed at, at, at times, um, you know, with expectations, you know, now, I suppose, and the, the change, particularly in the, the NFC North, um, can, the, can the Lions live up to, to those um, lofty kind of expectations? And, you know, will D- Detroit no longer be the, the factory of sadness? Well, first of all, Mitchell Schwartz fancies himself as something of an Epicurean with his Mitch in the kitchen, you know, cooking steaks and his grills and all that kind of stuff. If you're not going to accept the uh, majesty of proper Irish black pudding, then that's going to cause the entire thing to become questionable in my eyes. So, look, I, he doesn't seem to like black pudding, but I I, I, I can't fix that. Um, 
As for the Lions, yeah, look, I, I love what they did because I've really loved this entire sort of rebuild project that they've undertaken, almost start to finish. I think they went about it the right way, which is let's set this out as a kind of multi-year process. Let's figure out where we're going to target year one, where we're going to target year two, and then theoretically it'll all come together at the same time. Um, and that's not to say that they got everything right because they've made some picks and some of those picks haven't worked out yet. And rather than just say, well, okay, now the whole plan is ruined, right? We, we picked a couple of guys and they haven't worked out, so we screwed it up. They've come up with the adjustments. And in particular, in the secondary, they, they've thrown a few bodies at that and it hasn't necessarily come together yet. So instead of saying, we're going to have to do it again, draft a corner at number six, you know, whatever, they've said, no, let's, let's go after some veterans let's just raise the baseline of the secondary and let's make sure that it's okay this year, whatever happens. And then if we think there's value at number six, fine, but we don't have to go chasing it. Maybe we get a corner at 18. Um, maybe we get a corner in the second round. Like they, they no longer have to go basically throw out draft value and best player available and, ju and just shoehorn a corner into that spot. And that's, I think, how people should be approaching free agency. Like it, it, it should be, uh, a methodology or should be a, an avenue to tick off needs and not have to go chasing need in the draft. The draft should be about who is the best player at the most valuable position that just, that makes this team better going forward or future proof something going forward. It shouldn't be about like, who's the best player at this position that we have a really bad need for, because that's when you start making sort of silly decisions. Sam, I just want to get your thoughts on Washington because it's such a strange situation with the ownership kind of still going on in terms of whether it's going to be a sale. Ron Rivera this week did three smoke screens at the league meetings. One, he says, yeah, we're coming towards Sam Hill, fifth round pick. He then referred to Jacoby Brissett potentially being the quarterback if they're not happy with Hill. And he even suggested drafting one. And yet, Lamar Jackson's out there. And if you look at his most successful period as a head coach with, with Carnine, it was the three years with Cam when he was really fully functioning in a similar type of offense and a similar type of quarterback. Are you surprised that they're not in for him? And is it a case of teams will continue to be trained the same way until they do get this set and the, the ownership team resolved? Yeah, I think there's kind of two parts of that. I, I think generally I'm not surprised that the the Lamar Jackson market hasn't been crazy um, because I think the, the way that whole process works with the, uh, the non-exclusive um, franchise tag the way it works with the two first round picks and the offer sheets and all that kind of thing, it makes it actually very difficult for a team to really go after him um, with that contract because uh, you can sign him to an offer sheet. Number one, you've got to negotiate with him and get anywhere with that. Um, if he decides to sign the offer sheet, Baltimore has a week effectively to decide whether they want to match it or not. But during that week, that contract lives on your books as if it's a done deal, right? So when this is coming up, when this is happening at the start of free agency, if a team wants to structure a contract in such a way that Baltimore effectively can't match, by which you've got to front load that thing, you've got to make it the cap hit year one, massive, all those kinds of things. There's a couple of teams out there that definitely could have done that and, and still can, uh, Atlanta being one of them. Like if they wanted to do that, they would need to carry that contract throughout the first week of free agency and effectively have no ability to do anything else, right? So Atlanta went on a pretty big spending spree in free agency. They they locked up um, one of their own, uh, an offensive lineman. They 
spend heavy on defense, bringing in guys like David Onyemata on the defensive line, Jesse Bates at safety. They could have done none of that if they sent an offer to Lamar Jackson uh, big enough that Baltimore couldn't match it or didn't want to match it. Um, and they would have been sitting there for the entire week, essentially hoping that the Ravens didn't match it and so they could get Lamar. No team wants to do that effectively. They don't want to run that risk. But that changes once you know free agency, the draft maybe moves on. I think there's still a chance that there is an offer sent his way and, and we do start to get some movement once it's actually a little bit more palatable for teams to start doing that. The other thing is I think it's real that, that teams basically expect Baltimore to match any offer that's sent his way and nobody really effectively wants to do. Like the Ravens have spent two years banging their heads against a brick wall trying to negotiate a contract with him, right? I don't think any other team wants to take up the mantle and do the whole thing over again just for the Ravens to match whatever deal they end up agreeing to. The only weird thing about the situation to me was whatever it was, four or five teams coming out five minutes after they put the tag on him saying, we're not in the Lamar Jackson sweepstakes. That That's kind of odd, and I don't have a particularly good explanation for that. Um, I'm not 100% ready to jump to the, well, it's collusion the same way everybody else is, but that's definitely a, a strange element to the whole process. As for Washington, we had Ron Rivera on our podcast at the Combine, I think it was. And before that moment, I didn't think there was any chance in the world that they were actually serious about the Sam Howell thing. I thought that's just what you say, you know, at the start of the league year before you actually get a chance to do anything. And eventually they'll go and get a serious quarterback, whether it's uh, Lamar Jackson, whether it's a free agent, whatever. But he was, I think, pretty serious about it when we talked to him at the Combine. And the fact that the only real move they made was bringing in Jacoby Brissett makes me think that that is plan A, is is for Sam Howell to win that job and, and see what he, they actually have in him. In terms of drafting one, maybe they'll draft one, but I don't think it'll be, you know, in the early rounds. They just they'll bring in a body for a contingency or for an extra guy to have a look at because until you know you have a quarterback, why not? But I do think they're going to give Sam Howell a chance to win that job. And Brissett is the kind of quarterback that you bring in when that's the plan, right? He's he's capable of starting games. If they need to turn to him, they're okay. But he's nobody's plan A. Like Sam Howell is plan A, and then Jacoby Brissett is the fallback. So one thing I think has been kind of interesting, like one of the teams I've been kind of, it's, it's weird to kind of monitor them. The Chargers with Justin Herbert, it, it seems like there's kind of the, the wide consensus that Herbert isn't really the problem with that team. So, you know, his contract's going to be coming up here in the next, you know, year two. Uh, do you, what do you think he has left to really prove to them before they hand him a big deal? Do you think he's deserving of like, you know, a super mega deal? Like, I feel like he's probably going to end up getting kind of, you know, something along that lines. And like, I don't know, with the fact that like, it seems like Brandon Staley is kind of on the hot seat or not on the hot seat every single year. Do you think a possible coaching shift? Like, do you think that they'll be looking to build around Herbert or do you think like there's the possibility that they kind of just let the next coach kind of do his thing? No, I think I don't think he has anything more to prove to them. I think he's already shown he can be an elite quarterback. But I think Kellen Moore now is their offensive coordinator. Like he's now tasked with okay, unlock the full potential of Justin Herbert because we know like he should be as good as any quarterback in the NFL based off what he's able to do. And for the last couple of years, he hasn't quite done that. He's been one of the most conservative quarterbacks in the NFL. His average depth of target is one of the worst. Is he's led the league in the last two seasons in 
PFF's turnover-worthy play rate, so the lowest turnover-worthy play rate in the NFL, essentially the most risk-averse quarterback in football. And the guy with his arm and his ability to make plays simply shouldn't be leading the league in that stat. It's not like it's a good thing to make more mistakes, but a guy capable of making the plays he's making should be making more mistakes than that just by virtue of you know being a little bit more aggressive. And I think overall, that number going up a bit with the uh, other shoe being that he's making a ton more big plays because he's being more aggressive would be an absolute net win for that offense overall. So I think Kellen Moore has basically been brought in to say, okay, prove to us that this isn't like a, a feature of Justin Herbert's game, that you can actually unlock this extra level of potential to him. Because I think there is a little bit of a question about how much of that is just Justin Herbert style. Like how much does he skew onto that kind of Alex Smith end of the spectrum, even though he's got way more, you know, like physical talent than Alex Smith ever had. Like there is the possibility that he is just a more conservative quarterback than, than he should be, I guess, with his uh, tool set. Sam, um, final, final round, but um, I suppose I'm, I'm interested in terms of the, the Panthers because um, as a Broncos fan, I, I look at the, the staff that Reich has put to, together with a little, a little bit of envy. Um, and obviously they've gone up to, to number one. And I know um, earlier on, like jokingly, uh, you kind of tweeted out the, the meme that's going around about Frank Reich uh, at the, the two pro days and uh, smiling at, at CJ Stroud. And I know that you really rate um, Bryce Young. And I suppose I'm just interested. Do you think that the, the Panthers went up um, with like a particular QB in mind? Or do you think that they went up with an open mind and they're kind of going to see how it shakes out over the, the next few weeks? Yeah, I, th- I still think it's reasonably plausible that they went up without being set in stone that they were going to take a guy. Like, I think they just wanted to have control over that pick um when you're sitting at number nine who knows how the draft is going to unfold right you and and we don't know how they view that top four quarterbacks a lot of people are sort of putting them all broadly in the same bucket there are going to be teams that think that's not a top four it's a top two or it's a top one you know whatever that looks like and and however you however the panthers view it determines how valuable that number nine pick is because if you think this this group is two quarterbacks strong, the number nine is useless to you because those two quarterbacks are probably going to go one, two. So I think it's definitely plausible that they moved up to one without being set on, we're taking this guy, this guy only. But they either viewed it as, well, look, whoever we're taking, he's not making it to nine. So let's go and do something aggressive. But then I think it is becoming pretty clear that it looks like it's going to be CJ Stroud. I mean, I don't really see the benefit to them of sort of faking, like hamming it up to, to if it isn't CJ Shroud, like if they're just putting on an act, I don't quite see the, the gain in that. So you kind of have to take it at face value that like Josh McCown, their quarterback coach, knew in this year, I mean, he looked ready to adopt CJ Stroud at the end of that pro day. Frank Reich is, you know, in raptures watching him. Like they've been attending all the other pro days, but it hasn't looked the same. Like they've been, <laughs> they've been there, they've been watching, they've been fine, but like it, it's it's not like they're welcoming a new guy to the family. So if that is an act, it's worked very well. But otherwise, you have to assume I think that they're drafting Stroud. 
Sam, it seems to be a strange time for running backs in the league. Um, we've seen three players being tagged on, on the franchise tag and then even the contracts that were handed out to Duvalty Williams, Miles Sanders were massive. The Giants this week have called off the kind of negotiations with Saquon. I'm just thinking, Robinson, it looks like the marquee running back in the first round, but bear in mind what we've seen over the past and even seen the Super Bowl with the Chiefs having a seventh round pick, you know, bell, essentially the bell cow for them. Is Robinson going to fall down the first round because teams aren't willing to go that early for a running back or is it just a talent too much to, to overcome and just they have to go in? Yeah, I think it's a big kind of referendum on that. Like, B. John Robinson from Texas is viewed as like one of these generational running backs. Like, I think he's the best running back prospect that PFF has seen come into the draft. So that's 2014 onwards, which means he's better than Saquon Barkley, better than Zeke Elliott um, as prospects. Uh, better than anybody else in that list. Like you're probably going back to Adrian Peterson, which was what, 2007, that kind of um, area. And it's the first sort of test since a guy like Saquon Barkley uh, of, well, how high are you going to draft a guy that's supposed to be that good? You know, because since that point, the Cowboys have been saddled with this Zeke Elliott contract that they've only just gotten out from under. Teams don't appear to be that keen on really giving running backs those big money deals. The market does seem to have corrected. Um, our salary cap guy, Brad Spielberger, says like we might not see another one of those sort of $15 million a year contracts or running back again, like ever. Like that might have been the peak. Uh, but this will be the first sort of test of how high you can draft the guy and still be comfortable with that. And like my opinion on it's changed a little bit over the last couple of years. PFF used to be this, like, never draft running backs high. It's, it's a waste of a pick. It's pointless. I think there's a couple of questions. The first one is, well, what does the contract look like? And you can go pretty high in that first round before the contract starts to become silly money. Like, you can get into the top 10, and the running back is still paid sort of outside the top 10 guys at his position in the league. Whereas if you go to the top 10 um, for an edge rusher, that guy's getting paid monster money. Uh, or, you know, a couple of other positions, that guy's already one of the best paid players in, in the league at his position. So even if he's good, you're not getting any surplus value. So I think for a running back, you can probably anywhere outside of the top 10 and maybe even, you know, eight, nine or 10, you could justify it from a contract point of view if he's really good. But then the other question is, well, what is the opportunity cost? What did we leave on the table by drafting a running back at this spot. That's where I think you have to start looking lower down that first round because you're probably leaving, you know, if you're picking, if you want to argue, say, number 10, let's take him at number 10 overall. Contract-wise, that's fine, but number 10 overall, you could be turning down the first corner on the board. You could be turning down the first wide receiver on the board. And if those guys are halfway good players, they're making a much bigger impact than a running back is. So for... The second part of that kind of evaluation, I think you're probably looking lower down. But anywhere like in the second half of the first round, I think is fine for a guy like B. John Robinson. So it seems like throughout, like, you know, the the, the shorts and t-shirt season, Darnell Washington has quickly become the, the favorite tight end. You know, he's he's the love child of everybody right now. And it seems like Michael Mayer has kind of fallen to the wayside a little bit. I'm kind of curious, look, like, do you still see Michael Mayer as possibly the top tight end or a first round prospect? And it's this year's tight end class is pretty stacked. Do you, how many do you think could possibly go in this year's first round? Yeah, I think Mayer is still a first round prospect. I don't think he's the first tight end or the top tight end on the board, but I don't think Darnell Washington is either. Um, 
Dalton Kincaid from Utah, I think, is comfortably the best tight end in this class. Like, it's uh, there's a there, you know, defensive tackle, Kalijah Kansi is going to get Aaron Donald comps because he's kind of the same size and he came from Pitt, you know, and it's unfair, right? Nobody, it doesn't make any sense to compare anybody to Aaron Donald because Donald might be the greatest player that's ever yeah. played the game. Yeah. Similarly, it makes no sense to compare anybody to Travis Kelsey because he might go down as the greatest tight end to ever play the game. But you can see a lot of Travis Kelsey in Dalton Kincaid. Like the way he moves, the way he runs uh, routes, the way he catches the ball. It, it, there's a lot of Travis Kelsey in that. And you know that's setting your sights extremely high. But I think he is by far the best receiving tight end in this class. And he's got enough about him as a blocker to still be the best guy. Um, Mayer is probably the best kind of all-around tight end. Like he's more of a Gronk type of tight end where he's got the blocking skills, he's got size, he wins with size as opposed to, you know, real uh, finesse running uh, routes and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think he's good at everything and he's still worth the first-round pick. I I wouldn't draft Arnell Washington in the first round, but I think there's another tight end or two that could sneak in there. Um, I think maybe you probably get three of them in the first round, which would be a real rarity. I love that you mentioned Kincaid. Watching his tape, it was crazy. He's like probably the best pure like pass catcher in the entire class. Like he, he's insane. He's he's yeah, yeah. Before Frankie goes on and and keeps going on about tape for the rest of the evening, Sam, I do want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing having you on the show for sure, and we've had so many comments. Um, that we will get to them over the next few minutes. So thank you so much again for joining us, Sam, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. No problem. Anytime. Take it easy, guys. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Wow. That was a really, really interesting. I actually stayed quiet. I have some kind of... I've got my mock draft in my head already that I'm putting down on paper, and I just keep moving things around on my virtual whiteboard right now because it's just... Yeah, I've got some really, really hefty comments that I'm not going to weigh in on today, but I will start spamming Brian and Colm over the next few days. Frankie, you're a few hours behind us, so you're okay for sure. Um, I do want to talk about something because for me, it was very, very strange. And I think all of us, none of us really seen it coming, but OBJ, he made an appearance this week at the league meetings, which is very, very interesting. And there's a lot of you know questions about where he's going to land this year for sure. So I'm very keen to see Frankie, where do you think OBJ is going to go this year? What do you think is going on in his mind? Because he's coming back from this ACL injury that we've all been kind of wondering, is he going to be 100%? If I had to guess, it seems like right now he probably ends up in possibly New York. I wouldn't be shocked to see him end up back in Los Angeles just because it seems like he loves Los Angeles so much. The Rams haven't done anything and are really putting out like a pretty piss poor roster, but I could see him possibly ending up back there. Maybe the Chargers end up wanting to give him a call because he does seem to love Los Angeles so much. But I think New York's probably got to be the number one option. Uh, I saw Baltimore could be a possibility, but I don't know. Baltimore just seems so against paying quality receivers. It seems like they'd rather wait till a guy turns 34 and he's a few years past his prime to give him a contract. So I don't know how likely that is. I'd probably say he likely ends up in New York with Rodgers, but who knows if Rodgers even ends up in New York at this point. I... I'm glad you, you confirmed which New York team you were, you were talking about there, Frankie. I thought for me you were, you were sending them back to us. Um, unfortunately, I do think it is the Jets. I genuinely would love to have them back with the Giants, but it's not going to happen. Colin was bored of listening to me talk about OBJ. Yeah, I mean, I, the OBJ stuff is, is fascinating because this is a guy who um, has missed 
you know, the entirety of um, last year. And he came in towards the end of last season. He visited with teams. He apparently was looking for big money and the need wasn't right in any way, shape or form. So um, I think whoever looks to bring him in is going to need to, um, you know, to have their medical team take a, a, a serious look at it. And what... What are you? What version of um, OBJ, I suppose, are are you getting? Um, but a lot of a lot of rumors that he, um, yeah, might uh, might well end up at the the Jets. Which I, I this will be fascinating, right? Because um, and Brian will enjoy this Eagles reference. Remember the Eagles dream team, Brian? Do you remember that year? And the Eagles were all set and they were absolutely stacked and they had all sorts of names um, and they, they massively disappointed. So um, you just, you, you wonder, you know, sometimes can you have um, too, too many cups in the kitchen? Yeah. And one thing that, that like, sorry, I'd say about it too, is like, I hope, I almost wish, and I hope the NFL team he goes to kind of acknowledges the medical standpoint of it, and he's not in a situation where they're like, we need this guy to be playing like 14 games for us in the regular season. This guy is going to be deciding whether or not we make the playoffs. Like, I, like it'd be awesome if he could straight up sign for a team in like November and December, still get a couple weeks to kind of ramp up with their training staff, you know, and then once playoffs starts, maybe week 16, week 17, you get him a couple weeks to get going, and then you get to have like a, a you know, a, a truly healthy and like effective OBJ for a few games in the playoffs. That would be absolutely awesome. I think that's kind of the dream scenario for a lot of these teams. It's just kind of a question of how much is that really worth? It's too bad we don't have, you know, that I'm not going to say too bad because I don't really miss it that much, but like the Tom Brady Buccaneers teams that are just kind of like, hey, like we're willing to do whatever it takes to win a championship right now. You know, we'll, we'll spend the extra capital. We'll maybe incur some extra cap penalties, but we're spending for right now. Maybe we don't need you in the regular season, but you'll be our, our playoff battering ram. You'll be our new Leonard Fournette or something like that. It's it's too bad we don't really have a team like that this year. It feels like the Jets want to be, but I feel like they also recognize, like, man, like, are we that good? Like, that that Buccaneers team had way more Hall of Famers than we do. What Colm says about the Dream Team is very accurate because if anybody who listens to White Fan Sports in New York would have heard in the afternoon yesterday the show in which, no, they came out and they said, the Jets are the best team on paper in the NFL. Not even in their own division. There you go. Best team on paper in the NFL. Just one more thing on OBJ. Colm said it a few months ago, his PRs here do a wonderful class and they do everything in their power to get him the right deal. What a, what a great move this week. He lives in Arizona these days. Let's rock up to the league meetings and we'll just go around the hotels talking to any team we can. Everybody, Look, gets, par- everybody gets paranoid. Everybody offers a few more quid. Look, at the Irish one is going to Arizona in two weeks' time. I'm more than happy to sit down with OBJ, have a few pints, have a coffee, find him a team, maybe bring him to Galway. You know, it might be a bit of crack. We need a good footballer on our side as well. Um, but I do want to touch on a point because Fred obviously missed the top of the show where we spoke about Lamar Jackson and he did actually post a message in my Twitter feed yesterday about this and I'm so sorry Fred I didn't get to you but I do think also that teams are purposely not offering Lamar the money that he's looking for right now because I do think that the teams are actively actively trying to reset the league and the situation after the drama that the Browns caused so Cleveland what did you do for goodness sake Um, and there was a whole long page about this yesterday and I just yeah, there's too many comments to actually go back to. 
Uh, but I do want to touch on more important news, which has actually been happening around the league, because obviously it's been some league changes. And now we've got the Thursday Night Flex, which is happening. And it's going to be two teams on Thursday night. It's going to be a bit strange for us to be able to cover everything all the time. I'm very keen to get what you guys think about this. A, from a fan's perspective, but also from, you know, a kind of a coach's perspective and a footballer's perspective because I, I'm not a huge fan of this. I'm going to be 100% honest with you guys. Just around the fact that you can play twice on a Thursday night during the season? Yeah, it's the flexing of the games as well. Well, the flexing of the games isn't voted in yet. That's that's to come. They're going to... It looks like it's going to get voted in. From a fan's perspective, obviously, we're on this other side of the world, but I suppose it is fair to say that there's many a fan on this side of the world that would plan a trip to the States in advance, like Colm does when he goes over to see family in November every year and if he was to be planning a Broncos game on a Sunday and it got moved to a Thursday okay he could probably accommodate it because he's there but there is people that would attempt to travel to the East Coast in particular to see the Patriots see the Giants see the Jets and they're travelling over on a Friday returning on a Monday you went to the Steelers Patriots game last year Christine and I imagine if you find out 15 days beforehand that the game has been moved to Thursday it's a, it's a disaster because you're not going to be able to get any return on your investment whether it's flights, hotels and stuff so but uh, and unfortunately we're now living in a, in a world where Roger seems to get whatever he wants and I don't think we should get too heavy on it because that wouldn't be upsetting people who maybe agree with him but um, he said he's looked in this and he sees that the, the was it, what do you say some, we want to see good content on the television and ultimately he's focusing on people watching the games and watching the best games as opposed more so to the people that are genuinely attending the games I, I just, Frank, just jump in quick just to say because I have been very vocal on this show in my criticism of the owner of Brian's team um, and his absolutely ridiculous taunting penalty that he was the, the main driver behind. But um, I will doff my cap because John Marrick came out this week and was the first uh, um, uh, you know guy out there to talk about how he thought this was ridiculous and the impact that it would have on fans in particular. And we, we need more of that. You know, the this is about, we know what this is about. This is about the Amazon deal. This is about the numbers. This is about the viewing figures. Um, and it's about the fact that they had some absolute duds on Thursday night football last year. Hello, Broncos Colts. Um, and they... To to me, yeah, th this is this is purely purely uh, about the the monetary side of things. We know the NFL is a business, um, but the the danger, um, is always I suppose around the 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 greed. Greed can kill the golden goose. And there were a couple of other things this week. Florio was on with Pat McAfee and said that ultimately they want to perhaps get to forty teams. Again, it's like the expansion of the the, the World Cup. You can have too much of a good thing sometimes. Yeah, I mean it's it's ludicrous. I mean, you guys are pointing out all the issues with the fans. I mean, outside outside of even just the ability to attend the game, the fans that are able to make it to the games, then I think we can all agree Thursday night games are the lowest quality NFL games of the week. They have the least practice going into them. The coaches aren't prepared for them. Your players that might get an extra day or score a few days to recover from their injuries from the six days ago that they injured a bunch of car crashes on a football field. They get to recover more time. So you're you're basically saying, hey, fans, you're going to get less of your favorite players playing. They're going to be less prepared to play good football. 
and it's on a third. Like all of it is just so senseless. The extra flexing is so ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's just, it seems like it's punishing the NFL fan base. And again, it's so crazy, especially after last year where it was like a literal meme every single Thursday. It's like, oh, what's the score going to be like? Twelve to nine every single game. It was ridiculous. It's just another step back for football. Players have to be absolutely hating this decision. It's just another thing where it's like, you understand why players like Lamar Jackson are fighting for more guaranteed contracts because you keep making it more and more dangerous to play in the NFL. You're adding extra games. You're not giving players much time to prepare or as much time to recover. It's just, it's a ridiculously poor decision by a, by an organization that is, you know, re- repetitively time and time again shows that like the, the money, the money is all that really matters to them. They're not really interested in the player health or the, you know, the health of the league at all. And that's just too bad, you know? Well, just to let you know, uh, the Amazon deal is actually worth $1.2 billion per year. Um, so obviously you can see why they should have just changed the teams that were actually appearing rather than actually doing it. Myself and the Steelers fan had a very heated conversation about this yesterday because I'm totally against it and he's on a mixed bag, which for me isn't the way it should be. And the players will come out. Some of them have come out. Mahomes has already come out and said, you know, this is ridiculous. It's it's not fair. The league is not being safe for us. And we can see that anyways as well. We've seen it with concussion protocol this year, the refing as well this year. Um, which has been really interesting. But let's talk about the other key takeaways as well that happened this week and other key decisions that were made, such as the NFL roster cutdowns that has to actually happen before the final preseason game, um, where, which is a bit crazy, um, where all the teams have to go now from like 1,000 down to like 53, um, where normally they would have been able to have a little bit break in between. Um, I don't know if you guys are happy with that, not happy with that. Um, it'd be interesting to kind of see where you kind of feel about that because I think the preseason games don't really give everyone a chance to be able to perform and be able to kind of show everything out in the field. This has been gradually <clears throat> happening over the past four or five years, I would say. There was a period where, you know, your fourth cut down used to be only like, say, 10 players, and I think it became 15 players and so on, and it's going to continuously trend in, trended in that way. And I think even the final cut down, you had a kind of a, a grace period where you can allow five or six players to, to remain within the panel and then close to the week of the kickoff, you you make that final decision, but it's gone now. Essentially, you're 53. Here's your final 53. They're making teams make those decisions earlier. It, it probably will benefit other teams because if it, we see every year with every team, there's a surprise player that doesn't make doesn't make the team. It looks like he's had a very good camp. He's played well in preseason games. Whatever you want to take over preseason game, and they don't make the, they don't make the team, and then they're picked up very late. Just might allow players to get picked up a little bit quicker and give themselves an opportunity to get into the new team, understand what the team expects of them, and they go from there. I love this move. Uh, I'm a big fan of the, like, UDFA to NFL storylines are absolutely awesome. This is going to allow more potential for that, you know. The guys that only, you know, got to spend their first couple weeks, maybe they didn't get as many reps in the game as they would have liked to. Now they're not immediately getting cut after week one of the preseason. They can hopefully have another few weeks to show their stuff in practices, show their stuff in a few more games. I think it's a super player positive move, which I love to see. I think it kind of helps, you know, it'll help players be able to rotate throughout games. It'll help guys be able to deal with injuries, teams be able to deal with injuries more, get better looks at guys in different situations. I I, I think it's awesome. It kind of, it's almost like it allows for like, I don't know, it's like you can have almost like an entire B team at this point. I think that's a really cool thing to be able to approach a preseason with. You can kind of, you can get a really good look at the entire depth of your roster, I think, being able to see see all 90 players and make your cuts after an entire process of evaluating as opposed to, having to make subtle cuts throughout the evaluation process where maybe a guy just had a few bad days of practice, but then he ended up being a quality player somewhere else. Now you're not going to miss out on that guy. So I like it. 
Uh, I'm just going to, I'm conscious of time. And one of the comments that I, that came in was, was interesting, was around um, Jilin character and, and his fit. Um, and we might get more into that close to, to the draft, but just one of the things that was happened this week was Dan Campbell um, talked. And, and I think this is what kind of an interesting piece because he said that they had talked to people who knew um, character and they had received some interesting um, information about him. And he was asked, is that good or bad? And he said, it's interesting. And we are in the season where it's absolutely lying season. Teens are, you know, that could be Dan Campbell absolutely telling the truth, right? And he's just playing it with a straight back. Or it could be that Dan Campbell is looking to influence where, you know, Jalen Carter might end up going. Does that give teams pause? Like the the stuff that guys drop um, for is is really interesting. And what happens? Like a lot of times, you know, fans really won't know what happens at the combine or at pro days, and the, that teams really try it in ways to to push buttons. They like you'll get guys who deliberately like poke players, like fit, like like metaphysically and also physically in order to to really push them so i just thought that was interesting that we we truly are into lying season you can come back to me on draft night if i'm completely wrong i'm going to say it now um will anderson is the fourth defensive player off the board absolutely nailed on 100 percent. Jalen carter no will anderson absolutely to Arizona, if not Arizona, because someone trades up for the quarterback and someone else will reap Anderson all the way. Okay, and so that... I'm going to download that and make sure that we have a hand, just like what happened with Colum, and we'll just make sure we've got everything together. I want to quickly say thank you so much to all of you guys. Thank you to Sam Monson from PFF for joining us as well. We are literally out of time, unfortunately, today. So we will be back next week. We will touch on the rest of the changes that the league is making for sure when it comes to penalties and everything and we'll also touch on any of the other news keep watching us on all our socials and uh, make sure that you do uh, subscribe to us on our youtube channel so that you can win a hoodie or you can win a hat with our friends at usa sports thank you guys at usa sports thank you everyone for joining us tonight we'll see you again soon we'll see you soon keep keep an eye lots of podcasts coming your way as well wherever you get your podcasts